One is a dramatic, straightforward adaptation of an Italian play, the other a much longer take on the same concept with many more plot lines thrown in for good measure. Death Takes a Holiday and Meet Joe Black, they remade it. to another episode of They Remade It. I'm your host, Stuart. And I'm your host, Jacob. And to just kick off our usual weather spin of things, dear God, the South just doesn't know who wants to be lately, huh? It's my God. Yeah, last last week here was, you know, so nice. It, you know, it wasn't even jacket weather. It was like, oh, I don't have to wear a jacket, but you know. Now it's just days of rain, and the cold has mm. come back with it. Not cold enough to bring me snow, but just cold enough to make it intolerable. So this is, I mean, coupled with allergies, this is just my least favorite time of the year. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, down here, um, we had all of the pollen in the world just drop at once. And then it became uh, freezing temperatures again for a solid week. Um, and it went from that straight to in the 80s today. So my body is not having fun. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can only imagine. my. I don't adjust well. So if I don't sound necessarily tip-top shape, I apologize. My esophagus and sinus system is slowly trying to kill me. I think we both make the same apology almost every episode, or we like alternate with it because we're always falling apart. We're in a constant state of being yeah, torn true. at the seams. I mean, <laughs> there's a comment on society right there. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I love it. Fun. Speaking of a desperate plea to have some escapism, what you've been watching? <laughs> oh, sure. We'll hop into it. and Yeah, just it's it's been uh, because we took a brief hiatus due to just work things and all that. So, you know, recording's a bit behind, but that's okay. Um, but so we didn't get a chance to talk about, a, you know, briefly touch on different things that had come up. Like uh, the Library of Congress inducted its first episode of a podcast. You know, so they're starting to include that media. Uh, I think it was an episode of This American Life. But hey. Uh, Help us all. Let, yeah, let's get the, uh, they remade it on Seven Samurai in there or something, huh? Hell yeah. Come on, Joey. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finally, he did hear... something for the people. I'm surprised I don't hear him referred to as Joey Biden more often. I would do it. Even if you didn't yeah, want I... me to. Yeah. He probably hates it. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um... I don't weird slam at the beginning of this one, huh? Yeah, very very strange. Um, I don't know if we'll touch on it at all or do an episode on it in the future, but there is a uh, an adaptation or an earnest remake of Tommy Wiseau's The Room that's being made uh, with Bob oh. Odenkirk in the lead role. Oh so, no, that's a thing. Um, so who knows? Uh, will that happen? Uh, maybe I don't know. Um, fucking movies, man. 
Yeah, and uh, the last bit, we won't touch on it much because we don't usually go into them until our year end of year show, but the Oscars did end up happening. This was a weird one. I obviously, we always talk about it. I have not watched the Oscars in years, but I, I was weirdly interested in this one, at least like tangentially. So I, I mean, I was just playing games and doing whatever, but I was constantly checking on the updates from it. And I'm, I'm not sure why I felt differently than I did to previous years. But uh, I think it's because it's like an actual like sort of interesting lineup this time around and ones that, you know, I actually wanted to do well versus all other years just being like, I don't give a shit anymore. That's true. I mean, I, I wasn't so hip on some of the uh, nominees, but uh, we kind of had a shutout this year, so it didn't really matter. Yeah, which to be fair, it's a, it's a shutout of a movie I personally liked. Oh, definitely. I did too. Uh, I just always feel weird about those shutouts just because it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, I do like this movie and I think some of these are, are well awarded, but you know, there, there are some other good movies in these categories too that we're kind of overlooking, but I mean, I, that's the way it goes. Um, but yeah, um, the Oscar thing is a perfect segue into um, the first thing that I watched, which I I finally got a chance to see The Whale, uh, oh, which, yeah, Brendan Fraser, yeah, <laughs> Brendan Fraser took Best, uh, best Actor. Best leading actor for the whale, uh, much deserved. Uh, his his speech was a little odd, but you know that's okay. Uh, worse things have he's happened. Had, he's <laughs> had to give a lot of speeches lately, and I think at this point he's just kind of like, okay, I'm very appreciative, but also this is a lot. Oh yeah, definitely. I just but, recently um, had to give a. I just recently had to give a best man speech, so I understand. Oh yeah, that, <laughs> not great, not fun. Well, maybe maybe fun depends on who you are. Um, well. But yeah, he, uh, like I said, I think it was well-deserved. He is a powerhouse in uh, that The Whale movie. Uh, he's kind of the only thing I like about that movie. Uh, yeah. I think it it touches on interesting topics, but it's kind of surface level, and it doesn't go much... It doesn't ever go much farther than that, and you can 100% tell this is an, this is a, uh, an adaptation of a play, just the way it's shot and everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, just really strange, and I, I don't know what Aronofsky saw in this, or why he decided to adapt it. Uh, I think maybe someone better could have probably taken this on, but... Yeah, it's an interesting one. I it, Again, I stand by what I said the first time of, I think it's an incredible movie in its own right. I think I could never, ever recommend it to anyone I care about, um, just because it is... Like you said, it's, not, it's nothing ultimately... That can be expanded on too much. It's it wears pretty much everything it does on its sleeve, um, but also it's just rough. So, oh yeah, it's it's really rough too. I mean, it's it did for all those you know for any complaints I have, it did get me to feel, and it didn't. Maybe at times it did, but overall it didn't necessarily feel manipulative, which I appreciate because a lot of times that's really easy to spot. Uh, I will say yeah. that probably my least favorite part is the the lack of subtlety is jarring. Like uh, yeah. Just, yeah, Moby Dick is a metaphor. They they hammer it early and they hammer it hard, and it never really stops. And I, I guess at least it's sort of an underlying theme. But it's it, it you know at some point it's just like come on guys, what what are we what are we doing here? Considering all the movies though that we've watched that have had such a nebulous like theme going on with it, sometimes I can appreciate one that goes here is the theme and you are going to hold on to it with both hands. <laughs> I guess so. Like, I can appreciate it. It's like, they know what they wanted to do and they did it. Like, fine. <laughs> like, let's, let's get this done and get the heck out. That's fair. Nope, can't fight that. But yeah, that is, uh, that is the whale. Uh, um, moving on from that, this is a slightly weird one. I rewatched 
Mel Brooks's uh, History of the World Part 1, which is one of his lesser talked about movies, and for some reason I actually enjoy it uh, more than a great number of his movies. I like it more than Spaceballs, that's for damn sure. But uh, the, the reason I watched it is because Hulu just came out with a sequel series to the movie called History of the World Part 2. 40 years later, it's a miniseries, and it's got, like, Josh Gad and Jack Black and all these fucking people in it running around being historical figures. Um, So I rewatched part one, fully intending to watch at least the first episode of part two to see how it, you know, how it fared. And I didn't end up doing that. Uh, (laughs) I completely forgot about it. But, uh, yeah, uh, as far as part one goes, it's, it's fine. I think it's got a lot of, uh, early Mel Brooks staple humor that holds up really well in small burst, but the movie has a massive pacing and plotting problem that it doesn't really know what to do with. Uh, There's a section on Rome in the movie, and there's a section on the French Revolution that are like five times the length of all the other segments, and they they just kind of overstay their welcome. And it, yeah, I, I think if they sort of kept themselves to smaller... Uh, smaller bursts of things with just quick jokes and then moving on, it probably would have fared a lot better, uh, especially on a rewatch. And sorry to interrupt the, you know, hard-hitting action right now, but apparently I don't know how to use my microphone setup, um, so my audio should sound a lot nicer now, so sorry. Yeah, at least, <laughs> that's the that's the hope, at least. I mean, Stu, Stu pretty much, he, he stopped me dead in my tracks on my Mel Brooks talk because he desperately didn't want to talk about that movie anymore. <laughs> Uh, and started fiddling with audacity and mic settings and stuff. So Mel Brooks is a tired. Everything should be Mel good. Mel Brooks is a tired hack. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I Uh-oh. don't mean that. I. I don't really have an opinion on it one way or the other. Well, then don't watch History of the World Part Two because he's the head writer of the show. He's like ninety four or something. Jesus but, Christ. Yeah, I mean, go go get him. I guess the last video I saw of him on Twitter, he was looking uh, a lot worse for wear. Which obviously, you know, he's you know he's old, so it makes sense, but. Whenever you see people like Dick Van Dyke that are like in their 90s and they're doing cartwheels and shit, you're like, oh my god. It, it's much more noticeable. That's a bit unintentionally relevant because apparently he got into a car accident not too, uh, a few days ago. Oh my god. Well, I didn't see yeah, that. So, just as a heads up in case that, in case by the time this airs, something else has happened. Yeah, I, I uh, deeply apologize. That is not... <laughs> that's, like, that's, that's just too perfect. Unintentional. Oh, but yes, that is History of the World Part 1, and uh, as to not dwell on my selections, uh, another one that you watched before I did, and another Oscar tie, I finally got around to watching Pinocchio, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Fantastique. I don't know why I decided to put that spin on it, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's not even Italian, that's French. Uh, (laughs) There's honestly not much that I can say on it that would feel like informative or revolutionary or whatever. It's a good movie. It's a great adaptation. Uh, uh, people were talking about it's the best Pinocchio movie of the year. I, I mean, it might be the best adaptation of that period because I, I think it's better than the Disney Pinocchio. Disney Pinocchio has great animation and it did a lot of really great early work for like the underwater stuff, but the story leaves a lot to be desired. And I think that's, e- even though they changed stuff from the original source material, the original book, they did kind of run with the broken nature of the storytelling, which I think negatively impacts it. Uh, and Guillermo del Toro's not only is great to look at and has fantastic animation, but it corrects a lot of the, you know, story qualms that I have with the original. So good movie. Oh, yeah. I, I loved it when I saw it. And it's just like, hey, cool. Historical as well. Oh, yeah, it's it's fantastic. I don't know why. I thought that it was going to be a lot closer to the book. 
than the original Disney one was. And in some, in some really minor, well, I say minor, in some major ways it is, but they're kind of few and far between. I'd, I'd say that overall, maybe the Disney one is, is closer, just without the darker implications. Yeah. Um, but Guillermo del Toro and his crew and the writers, they, 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 you know, they did a great adaptation with the directions that they took it. Uh, I was very pleased and uh, I'm glad it won Best Picture because I, I don't know, I still have not seen The Sea Beast and I haven't seen Marcel, uh, but I do think it was better than the other entries. Yeah. Wasn't a big fan of Turning Red. I stood up for Puss in Boots and that I think it's actually a, a, a pretty good movie, especially for DreamWorks, but, you know, Pinocchio was the clear winner. Oh, yeah, because it's like an, not gonna fight it's an actual, like, in-depth film. And so it's like, oh, yeah, like, quality. Not to say again against Puss in Boots, but it definitely was more just a family film than anything, like, anything close to high art. Yeah. No, I, I, yep, I, I agree with that. Everyone should see Pinocchio and probably, I'm not going to make any promises, you know, like I have in the past, but I think in the coming weeks, I'm going to try to watch uh, Sea Beast and Marcel just because I've heard good things about both in different respects. And I guess if I do that, I'll have seen all of the uh, Best Animated Pictures nominees this year. But um, yeah, look forward to me potentially talking about those. But uh, yeah, Pinocchio, that's the, uh, I've watched other things here and there. I've played some games, you know, but uh Nothing as big as uh, those three uh, features, probably. Um, but hey, I'm going to the theaters tomorrow night, and I'm going to watch Scream 6, so I'll, I'll be reporting on that, you know, live at the theater. I'll be reporting on that next time. Huh. Um, well, I, I, but yeah, that's it for me. I wish I wish you luck on Scream. It's, I can only imagine. Um, I have heard great things about Scream 6, surprisingly, for, uh, and I was kind of mixed on 5, I think, but... fair. I think because six is moving away from the like legacy fucking that Scream Five was doing. Like, look at all these characters that are back and look what they're doing. Six apparently gets away from that, which is good. So we'll see. We'll see. Without wanting to turn into the Screamcast, I do. I did actually really like the marketing that they've done for it. Like the first trailer or poster that came out. Like it's the Scream mask, but like with the New York subway train system map. And I was like, okay, that's cool. That's that's creative. It seems like people are actually like you know having fun with this. Um, Right, and I think that I think it's a good trailer too. I think I was negative on it when I first saw it because I didn't understand why we were doing it aside from money. Because Scream Five was like a, like I said, here's all these characters from the original film, all these actors, you know, like Jurassic World Dominion or Ghostbusters Afterlife. It's like, you know, you love all these characters. This is an end to the story. It felt that way. So when I first saw the trailer, I was like, what the fuck is that? Why? Why? But you know what? In terms of you know, being shot and the feeling that just the trailer on its own gives you, it's a good trailer. Yeah. Good trailer, good poster. So. Basically, its marketing was like the exact opposite of the marketing situation that happened with the movie Babylon. Speaking of which, I watched some of Babylon. <laughs> you watched some of Babylon? I... Yes, let's let's get into yours. I've been hogging this. Oh, I know, it's fine. Um, I found... I'm not even going to like try to be like t- like shy about it. Like I found someone that posted like chunks of like the whole film online, and so I just watched bits of it. Because like, I didn't... As with everyone else in the world, I didn't know what the fuck it was about. Because all the trailers and all the, like, marketing was among the most god-awful I've ever seen. Because it did nothing to actually, to, like... Okay, based on... I'm gonna ask you. Because I don't know... Have, do you know what the movie is about? I... No, I have seen the trailer, though. And I have my own headcanon. I've seen the trailer, like, three times since I've been going to the theater more I often. want you to give me a brief th- thing of, like, what do you think the movie is about based on the trailers you have seen? Based on the trailers I've seen, which it has now been probably two months since I saw one, so we'll see... Um, it is based on, it is a fictionalized telling of a potentially true story from around the dawn of film, uh, at least in America. And it's about a wild director, uh, who finds his 
muse and they have crazy sex parties. Uh, you are a solid maybe 45% of the way there, based on the trailer. <laughs> okay, uh, honestly, okay, probably more like 30 when I get right down to it, but the the film itself okay. is actually about the period of um, American filmmaking, uh, specifically dealing with the transition from silent film into, well, talking film, like, you know, actual audio filed film. Um, and it centers on the kind of ex eccentric and debauched lifestyles that so many of those early Hollywood starlets and directors and everything and actors all lived under before, you know, the coming of talking films and the eventual coming of like, you know, basically film boards and that sort of thing and like, greater control over like how the process is done. Um, and it's like, that's what the name Babylon is referring to in the sense of, you know, referring to the actual historical Babylon and their kind of romanticized level of debauchery and you know decadence and everything like each man was their own god in his own way and then their inevitable you know hubristic fall from grace and everything that's what it's about it is about the you know it is about the the showing the peak of hollywood at its most hollywood-esque and its inevitable crash down centering on three individual characters okay well the three individual characters aspect is neat but i like i, I mean as clearly evidenced i didn't end up watching it but my takeaway you know, all the things that I was saying about it. One of the core pieces was that it was, like, fictionalized, but still based around real events. And is that true? I mean, yeah, aside from it is. It is. the general the general transition from, you know, this to that, I, I figured some of the people in the movie were meant to be actual... Uh, I think there are... This is the director of the jazz singer or something. I, I think know. there are a few, at least, like, references directly to it. Um, I haven't seen the whole thing. Like I said, I've just seen kind of, like, maybe the first third or so. Um, because just, like, I couldn't really be bothered with the rest of it. Because it's kind of, like, it's a lot... Um, it definitely goes into like as much on-screen debauchery as they can show, like without meaning to spoil, which this isn't a spoiler within the first like 10 minutes of the film. One of the main characters has an elephant shit on him. Mm, great. Adam Sandler. Happy Mason Bas basically. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty, it's, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to really put an opinion on it super directly right now. I like what they are wanting to do with it. Like I like the re reference to Babylon and everything and, how it kind of relates to that era of film in general. And obviously this is probably a very played up version of how shit went. Um, but the fact that the marketing was about the worst that I've ever fucking seen in as far as film goes. Yeah, no, it's pretty rough. <laughs> um, so I can't tell you if I recommend it or not, frankly. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. At least I think if the marketing had any done any justice, it would have been pretty cool. And it would have been like, Oh, I, I want to go see this. But as it is, you know, because I'm a history nut and that sort of thing. But as it is, nah, it's just, it's just not there for me. Um, well, but unfortunately, in the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, but beyond that, I've really only watched one other major film in our time away. Like I've been busy as hell. Um, like I, said, I mentioned earlier, I was uh, I gave a best man speech at my brother's wedding, um, which was in Texas. So flew there, um, and I watched my other film on the plane ride over. <laughs> um, yeah, they had um uh, on board like movie service thing um and i watched uh amsterdam the kind of spiritual successor or sequel to um was it american hustle uh kind of that mo movie set about like con artists and everything in the i think 70s yeah like late 60s early 70s um but this one is set in the kind of late mid to late 30s of uh, america i think in new york specifically um i don't i think the best way i could describe it is inconsequential in the sense of I watched the movie and it's it's framed to be kind of like a dark humor noir or it's like this mystery of these people getting like tangled up with these crazy things going on. There's obviously some grand conspiracy with all this stuff. 
but it never like it sets up a lot of threads that you think it's going to take or you think it's going to do other things with or it introduces characters that have like very specific slants to them and doing like particular activities but then they just don't happen and it's meant to be framed around a few actual occurrences that happened in the united states like in the kind of pre-world war ii era and i don't know it's hard to describe it just because like the plot's just kind of all over the place and i don't really it just kind of safely concludes at the end like oh we have this like oh we need to clear our names and it's like oh it's inevitably there's gonna be some big chaotic thing it's like oh no in the end they found the papers that exonerate them and they have an eyewitness and they're cool with the cops now and now they're all going to team up to do the you know catch the bad guys in the act it's like oh surely something crazy is going to go down to nope no it's it all goes pretty much perfectly according to plan no one really gets hurt and then that's kind of it i'm like oh okay And it's just kind of the magic of the movie. Yeah, it's just like I ultimately it was just like it set up a lot of things. Like there's a whole thing where there's like a there's this one side character that's like a cop, like in training, but at all times he appears to be like he's either completely just mentally inept or he's just constantly drunk or like doped up or something. And so he's like kind of like just this jackass is clearly like you know early like you know early racist and everything, but like it doesn't go anywhere. He's just kind of there as this random kind of foil or comic relief, and it just kind of sputters and dies as, as soon as it's introduced it's like what was the point of setting all this up i thought that was gonna be intrigue later like he was gonna be a like a plant from the villains or something it's no no just we're fine okay cool well good to see mike myers doing his, his thing again he's he's in it briefly uh i have to wonder so many so many films have that problem especially even ones that i would consider good where it's it's just like oh you know this this plot thread could have been something, but they either didn't utilize it fully or they it seemingly forgot about it. And I have to wonder why it's so common, you know, when so many people are working on a project, how something like that can happen. Yeah, it's I don't know. I think they're trying to do the thing again that they, they did a similar style in American Hustle. But the difference there being is that they actually had a pretty cohesive plot line through the whole thing. And it tied together with like real events that happened, you know, in America. Like it, both movies start off with the line instead of based on true story. It's it it has the line. Some of this stuff actually happened, which I think is funny. Um, I think American Hustle did it really well, but it, it seems like they just tried to do it just with a different era, and that just like, yeah. without wishing to spoil too much, it has to do with like you know the rise of like fascist movements and everything in like the 30s and everything, like both in you know Europe and America, um, since there were quite a few. Um, which is like, hey, good thing that doesn't happen anymore. Anyway, um, it's it, it it tries to center on that, and it ultimately kind of becomes a story about like how you know the victory of the day is won by caring about each other unconditionally and all these different things. And it's like, okay, but couldn't you have done it in a little bit more of an interesting way? Because fuck all happened. So I don't know. It's just it, that really the like I said, best way I can describe it is inconsequential. It just kind of feels like we're here, we did a thing, and now we're done. Okay, I don't know why you felt the need to put this onto a film, but fine. There's some there's some funny lines at least. I like the interactions between the three main characters, but you know that kind of becomes a sideline at a certain point. Well, I'm glad that the movie is consistent at least because when you first mentioned Amsterdam, I, I was desperately treading in my memory because it's like I know that I got a, I got a trailer for that at least twice at the theater, but I couldn't for the life of it remember. <laughs> you know, for as fucking awful marketing Babylon had, I at least remembered the trailer, even if it wasn't a good trailer. Amsterdam, I'm like, I am 90% sure that I saw something on that, and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you oh, what yeah. I saw. 
because like the, so, so. The, worst part, the problem with it is that again it takes place in 1930s new york and so the color palette can be best described as drab so there's nothing really popping out about it and the performances are the only thing really holding it up and it's just like all right otherwise it's pretty non-memorable god knows the the trailer did even less for the fucking plot than well okay, okay babylon still did worse but still it's close Um, but yeah, beyond that, I don't think I've really watched anything else major. I've been playing all the games. Um, I've been playing the hell out of, um, Grounded, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the video game, um, which it's made by Obsidian, the people who made my previous crack addiction, Fallout New Vegas. So makes sense. Um, um, beyond that, I've also played, I also found a kind of just a random little gem on Steam called, I think it's Against the Storm. It's a city builder, like a town builder, village builder, whatever, but it's a roguelike where each you have to build a bunch of really small settlements and you have randomized buildings that you can actually build for each time. Like each time you go out, so you have to like adjust strategies for like what resources are available and what few things you can actually have direct control on and just try to make it work. And I, th it's actually really fun. It's a nice little change on things. It actually gives you some, like some action ability with city builders that you don't really get that often, that they can kind of just be like, Oh, I didn't set up my city extremely perfectly early on and so now the whole thing just needs to get bulldozed half the time which i guess you know it's the that's the, the civic planners you know usual tango in real life as well um but yeah i think i like it a whole lot um it's still in early access but it's a fully fledged game in its own right right now so i've enjoyed it quite a bit that's nice it feels like the fate for most of those games though is to just lurk in early access and never really get out it's very rare for any of them to ever be like, hey, this one definitely we have the actual game now because it's like it's it's already the game is there. Yeah. So it's like, why bother? This one definitely seems like they're working towards a specific goal with it, because even on the front page itself under the fucking play button, it literally says next update is on this date where they literally are like specifically like scheduling. Out. It's like there will be another update on this date, it's like on the main screen. So it's like it's clear they're wanting to they're actively advancing it. So which is nice. It's still a little. I wouldn't call it bare bones right now. It just seems like the end goal isn't really in sight with everything. It's just kind of, you know, just doing this, building these cities up and kind of upgrading your main skills kind of alone. And there's no real like point of, oh, this is where you would meet the end of the game or where you would get to the point where things change drastically. Or it's like, so that, it definitely seems like they're still figuring that out, but which is fine. That seems like the last thing to worry about. Sure. I mean, a lot of those games just, you know, worry about the mechanics first, mm -hmm. and then you can turn that into your free form mode if you have like a, you know, like a zoo tycoon or a city skylines or whatever, and then you just implement campaign or missions or whatever. Not that that's, you know, the fate that all of them are relegated to, but that's usually the path. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think it's been, a, you know, its mechanics are great. I think it's simple and straightforward enough to be able to get a hang of, and it's complex enough that if you want to rank, ramp up the difficulty, it's a lot of fun to do it. So it's a solid recommend from me. Um, but very nice. Beyond that, I truly don't think I've really watched much else. And we're slowly getting through the rest of Futurama, but that's about it. <laughs> where are you in Futurama? It's only got seven seasons. Uh, well, we're I think we're on the seventh season. We just did the the episode where they have the oh. time machine that can only go forward. Oh yeah, the late Philip J. Fry. I, that's probably the best of the Comedy Central run. Yeah, that one's I think my favorite. That's honestly like I like a lot of the Comedy Central run in general. Actually, a lot of the earlier episodes I'm kind of mixed on, um, but the Comedy Central run for whatever reason I, I actually like quite a bit. Um, but yeah, uh, that's that's kind of it for me. You only took you know this amount of time to get here. <laughs> yeah, it took us a, it took us uh, an eternity 
Which, speaking of which... Speaking of Eternity, speaking of the Endless Void... And also a three-hour fucking movie. Oh, that too? <laughs> <laughs> we, we were going different ways. Oh, but the, in the end, um, yes, today we uh, are talking about Death Packs a Holiday and Meet Joe Black... So, firstly, we will be discussing the plot of 1934's Death Takes a Holiday, directed by Mitchell Leeson? Lyson? Something like that. <laughs> and uh, based on the play La Morte in Vacanza by Alberto Casella. After years of questioning why people fear him, Death takes on human form as Prince Serki, played by Frederick March, for three days so that he can mingle among mortals and find an answer. Following multiple events of him in shadow form scaring multiple groups on the way back from a party, he finds a host in Duke Lambert, played by Guy Standing, after revealing himself and his intentions to the Duke, and he takes up temporary residence in the Duke's villa. While staying, Death, in his prince disguise, engages in multiple activities such as fine dining, gambling, and pitching woo to multiple women, but fails to find enjoyment in any of it and seemingly rendering his experiment a failure. However, Death falls in love with the beautiful young Grazia, played by Evelyn Venable? As he does so, Duke Lambert, the father of Grazia's mortal lover, Corrado, played by Kent Taylor, begs him to give Grazia up and leave her among the living. Death is torn between seeking his own happiness or sacrificing it so that Grazia may live. After listening to the pleas from the Duke and his house guests, Death finally decides to let Grazia live and returns to his true self, a black shadow. As he prepares to depart, Grazia chooses to go with him, telling him that she knew all along who he really was. Death then proclaims that love is greater than illusion and is as strong as death. He puts his arm around Grazia, and they both disappear in a flash of light. That's the end of that. Was that a short synopsis? Yeah, because there, honestly, there's not a lot that actually happens in this movie. Quick shots of gambling and shit, for one. Yeah, you know, a lot of uh, arguing the same point over and over again between two people. But yeah, uh, before moving on to the next plot, I will read off uh, some of the remaining cast members that are important to the story overall, but in terms of the actual plot, barely played a role. Uh, we have Catherine Alexander as Alda. We have Kathleen Howard as Princess Maria. Henry Travers as Baron Cesaria. We have Otto Hoffman as Fidel. Helen Wesley as Stephanie. And Gail Patrick as Rhoda. Now, on to 1998's Meet Joe Black, directed by Martin Brest. Media mogul Bill Parrish, Anthony Hopkins, is contemplating a merger with another media giant. Meanwhile, his eldest daughter, Allison, played by Marcia Gray Harden, is planning an elaborate 65th birthday party for him. His younger daughter Susan, Claire Ferlani, a resident in Internal Medicine, has a relationship with Drew, played by Jake Weber, who happens to be one of Bill's board members. Considering marriage, as Bill sees Susan is not deeply in love, he suggests that she instead wait to be swept off her feet, suggesting lightning could strike. When the company helicopter lands, he hears a mysterious voice which he tries to ignore. Arriving in his office, Bill has sharp pains in his chest and hears the voice again, saying yes. While studying in a coffee shop, Susan meets a vibrant young man who also says lightning may strike a relationship between them. Stunned, she departs without getting his name. Unbeknownst to her, directly afterward, he is struck fatally by multiple cars. That evening, Bill hears the voice again, and it summons him, so Bill meets him alone in a room. Slowly materializing, it identifies itself as death, and is now in the body of the young man Susan met earlier. This man here is played by Brad Pitt. 
Death explains that his impassioned speech to his daughter piqued his interest. Given Bill's competence, experience, and wisdom, Death says that for as long as Bill will be his guide on Earth, Bill will not have to die. They both return to the dinner table, and under pressure to make an introduction, clumsily make up a name for Death, introducing him to the family as Joe Black. Joe Black, having no sophisticated human qualities, doesn't seem to know how to drink or eat, or how to use food and utensils. He later wanders through the palatial house to adapt. Susan tries to understand his intentions, noting that his character is not the same as that of the man she met in the coffee shop earlier that day. Bill fails to keep events from going rapidly out of his control. Drew secretly conspires with parish communications, catalyzing on Bill's strange behavior and reliance on Joe to convince the board of directors to vote Bill out as chairman. Using information from Bill's son-in-law, Quince, played by Jeffrey Tambor of all people, Drew pushes for merger approval, which Bill now opposes. Intrigued by Joe's naivete, Susan sees he's very different from the young man she met in the coffee shop. She falls deeply in love while Joe is now under the influence of human desires and a magnetic attraction to her, and they make love. After they dress, Joe asks Susan, what do we do now? And she replies, it'll come to us, Bill inadvertently walking in and seeing them kiss. Bill angrily confronts Joe about his relationship with his daughter. He then suggests to Susan that Joe won't be around for much longer. At Susan's hospital, Joe interacts with a terminally ill old woman who wishes to die. Understanding who he is, when he tells her he loves Susan, they discuss the meaning of life and she helps him understand he is dangerously meshing two worlds. When Joe asks her if she is ready to go, she accedes. As Bill's birthday arrives, Joe declares his intention to take Susan with him. Bill pleads with Joe to recognize the meaning of true love, especially honesty and sacrifice, and to not steal Susan's life. At the party, knowing his death is imminent, Bill makes peace with his daughters. Susan tells Joe she has loved him since the day in the coffee shop, and he hints that his time is coming to an end. Realizing Susan loves the unknown man and not him, Joe is crushed. He doesn't tell her who he really is, but she seems to intuit something mystical about his identity. Struggling to comprehend the magnitude of their interaction, Susan refuses to recognize Joe as death. Joe realizes he must set aside his own desire and allow Susan to live. Quince apologizes to Bill for undermining the company, and Bill forgives him. Joe helps Bill regain control of his company, exposing Drew's underhanded business dealings to the board by claiming to be an agent of the IRS, and threatening to put Drew in jail. In their father-daughter dance, Susan and Bill say goodbye. Fireworks begin, and on a hilltop above the party, Joe waits with tears in his eyes. Bill heads up to him, and they share their thoughts, Bill asking Joe if he should be afraid. Joe, of course, replies, not a man like you. As the fireworks explode in the distance, Susan watches Joe and her father cross a bridge at the top of the hill and descend out of sight to the other side. Susan stands stunned as the original Joe reappears alone and bewildered with no memory of any of the previous days. He is again the young man from the coffee shop, of course, uninjured and not comprehending the party that he's currently at. Susan knows that her father is gone and the magnetism, and the magnetism that she has shared with this young man has returned as they descend hand in hand toward the party. Yep, that is Meet Joe Black. Well, that was a lot longer than it needed to be, but I'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, instead, we will uh, hop into Full Circle really quick. So we have seven names this time around, and I didn't cut any of them out because none of them are background people, so I wanted to touch on everyone as importance. Uh, but we will make through it. We will make our way through it uh, relatively quickly here. Uh, firstly, uh, main star Frederick March was uh, Death, of course, uh, or Prince Serky in 34's Death Takes a Holiday. He was also the main character, Norman Maine, in 1937's A Star is Born. Oh, yeah. Was... <laughs> you had to think. Yeah, I was like, who the f Oh, yeah. <laughs> hmm. Mr. Maine. Gail Patrick was Rhoda in 1934's Death Takes a Holiday, and she was also Barbara Drew in 1945's Brewster's Millions. And now on to the Meet Joe Black connections. Uh, the one of the one of the two big ones here. Anthony Hopkins, uh, of course, was the main character. Well, one of the main characters, William Parrish, uh, in Meet Joe Black. He was also Daniel Webster in 2003's Shortcut to Happiness. 
Uh, remember that? And he was also the narrator of the 2000 Jim Carrey vehicle, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. That's very two, two alikes and one different there. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Hey, Daniel Webster doesn't necessarily have death in it, but yeah, it has the devil. It's, it, it, as far as its general... It's dealing with the afterlife. As far as its general vibe, you would be surprised... Like, I wouldn't be surprised if someone said, like, oh, Anthony Hopkins was filming both of these at the same time. He was just going across the street to the other set. You know what? That actually, I would not... That could actually possibly make sense because they're they're five years apart, but Shortcut to Happiness took forever to come out. So yeah. maybe. Plus, they just they look similar. They have a lot of similar scenarios and everything it feels like set up. So. Um, but uh, not to, uh, you know, that's not the only 2000s Grinch connection we have because Jeffrey Tambor showed his face again as Quince in 98's Meet Joe Black. He was, of course, uh, the mayor, Mayor Mayhew, in How the Grinch Stole Christmas 2000, and he was Tom Manning in 2004's Hellboy. Right. Weird actor, but a good guy. <laughs> uh, hmm, I don't know if he's a good guy, but yeah, I, maybe, I do like him as a character. Maybe, maybe it makes the two up. Good actor. Weird guy, but good actor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when he's not screaming at people on, on set. Yeah. He's a good actor. Another big one, of course, Brad Pitt, who was Joe Black uh, in Meet Joe Black. He was Aldo Rain in 2009's Inglorious Bastards, and we saw him as Robert Ryan in 2001's Ocean's Eleven. Again, it's like, it, it kind of like two likes, one different. <laughs> like... Yes. <laughs> Lawn kind of frosted hair for two of them, and then just, you know, the, the Apache. <laughs> two left here, we have Diane Gagan, who was Jennifer, uh, the other sister, in Meet Joe Black. Uh, she was the nurse in 1990's Jacob's Ladder. Oh. A favorite of mine. Excuse me. And last uh, but not least, Jake Weber, who played Drew in Meet Joe Black. Uh, he also showed up in as Michael in Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. Oh. Oh. I know who Drew is. I don't remember. I don't remember Michael. No, I, a lot of that movie just just doesn't stick with me. So yeah, he's kind of like the he's the very white bread boy toy character for the main female lead. Okay, well, makes sense. He was in a lot of those early two thousands ish films. Always as a shitty lover, is he? <laughs> I guess. Uh, but that is the end of Full Circle. So, give me your thoughts. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I I kind of gave gave like a weird kind of showing of the hand earlier of being like, God, this movie's long. At least the the you know meet Joe Black. And I'll get into more details about Death Takes a Holiday as well, obviously. But having watched the Meet Joe Black, I found it the fact that I watched nearly all of it compared to my, my usual with longer things of skipping longer swaths of it. And at times I had to, obviously, just because, you know, I'm impatient sometimes. But I still watched the vast majority of it. I enjoyed my time with it. And then the scene at the end where the daughter is saying her goodbye to the dad, to like Anthony Hopkins character, I cried. I won't lie. I fucking like just, you know, I, I'm a I got a soft spot for like, oh, parent, like father with child about to have something really deep and like destructive happen. Yeah, that's that's going to hit me hard. Um, and then, you know, it was kind of lightened by the fact that presumably just after that, were she to fully go over that bridge, what that Anthony Hopkins character just like disappeared over, that she would then just find her father's body just on the ground, having had his heart finally give out. <laughs> It's just like, oh, yeah, that, that, that lightened the mood a little. Um, yeah, because, I mean, someone would have to find him. Yeah. Like, death isn't literally disappearing. It's like he he's dead. His body is still there. They'd find him in the river underneath the bridge or something. I, like, I, cause I, don't, creek. I don't know what, what's on the other side. I think, it just, I think it's just the parking lot on the other side of that thing. So they'll probably just find him out there. <laughs> I've been I've been to places yeah. like Uh-oh, that. Oh, dead collapse. I've been to places like that before. Um, so, yeah, that setup would be accurate. The parking lot's probably just out that way. Um but yeah, so I didn't really realize that the movie had gotten to me 
until the very end. And so then I had to reevaluate a lot of my opinions on it because I realized a lot of it I was kind of shitting on versus the with um, which I had actually kind of a similar experience with Death Takes a Holiday for the simple but in a different sense in the sense of, oh, this is a pretty kind of meandering film at times with like a bit of poet like poetry about the nature of life and in its relation to death. But then in the end, it takes like in the last like 20 to 30 minutes really just hammers it home with the fact that death is falling in love with this woman and this woman has fully fallen in love with death. And then it reveals that she knew it was death the whole time. And we realize, oh, this is a movie about us discovering the one true goth. <laughs> this, is, yes. this is the most goth woman to ever live. And she fucking did it. <laughs> Look, there are things that I like about Death Takes a Holiday, but it has a real problem in that I thought it had a really interesting concept that it was going for and it kind of abandoned it abandoned it near the end specifically for this love story which i figured there was going to be romance in it regardless due to their sort of building up of the grazia character but i didn't think that that was going to turn into the point of the movie whereas meet joe black is up in front about that is what this movie is about but it is also about like corporate shenanigans and like anthony hopkins like because meet joe black I, I was talking about it, obviously, in the opening singer that it introduces a lot of extra plot lines. But to be said, it doesn't feel like any of them are rushed because the movie is fucking three hours long. Yeah. So it's not like they're scrambling to include a bunch of extra things. They take their time. Yeah. Um, Which I gotta say... But honestly, yeah, the romance yes, stuff is up in front in... Oh, um, no problem. Uh, uh, the, in Meet Joe Black, the romance stuff is at least front and center, so you sort of know that's what you're getting into. With Death Takes a Holiday, I thought it was interesting going into it because it's obviously, you know... Death is doing an experiment over his holiday, and he's, you know, he's constantly like, why are people afraid of death? Why are people scared of me? Death is nothing. I, you know, it's, it's just another, you know, it's, it's, it's the passageway to another existence, more or less. But partway through the movie, he starts to become frantic, and he's talking about how his time is almost up. And it's like, this is interesting, because death is experiencing the fear of death. Where are they going to go with this? You know, you know, he can have a realization as to why people fear him because he's experiencing it now. It, it's the loss of being able to engage in this, and then they sort of abandon that for the romance side of it, uh, which was disappointing to me at the very least. Yeah, it kind of felt like I, I just this honestly just dawned on me. It kind of felt like with the beginning, it was setting up a sort of experience like the original "The Day the Earth Stood Still" with you know the alien man like um, Klaatu, um like comes down to Earth and you know has this whole situation and he's able to walk among man. And recognize all these things like your existence is so strange. And it's it's meant to be this moment of like reflection for the audience to be like, yeah, I guess our world is kind of weird. And it's weird we have these certain biases and these sorts of things. I thought that's, yeah, that's kind of, I thought that's what they were going for with this one where it was setting up, oh, why do we, you know, like it, it makes up a few decent points of you live in this world where, you know, the outside is beautiful and lush and you have all these like grand things out there. But and yet you all stay in this smoky, dusty room playing gambling, you know, like, you know, just gambling our, your time away. And, you know, the not many grand responses can be made for that other than, well, we find it fun. And like, yeah, that's kind of a weird thing to think about, given that the world is so vibrant in its own way. But then, yeah, it really does just pivot away from that to the moment of he has decided that instead it is love that is the only reason for living, which, like, I guess is a pretty good moral. But also it just then very much pivots into the point of, hey, I am death and I do not have the right to love this thing that has a world of its own. And I cannot take that away. But instead, he happens to have just run into the most down bad woman in the world for him. It's like, whoa. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, when they like the fact that they fully did the whole thing of, you know, I knew it was you the whole time. 
I fully was like, are you fucking for real? This girl is crazy. I love her. Um, and it it made me hate the fact that the character wasn't actually in the movie for a whole lot. Like, Grazia is a, for a fair amount of the movie, is just absent. Like, at yeah, one she point, she has nothing to do with anything. Like, for literally, I think two of the three days, Death is like there on Earth. She's just absent. Like, they had to leave early or some shit. And meanwhile, he's just kind of like, slumming it with these two other girls who are trying to catch his attention and he's like oh i'm sort of in love with these i guess but then she comes back in like a literal bat out of hell it's just like hey i'm cool i'm mysterious and i could make every like the fact that this isn't like the goth kid you know magnum opus of a movie is a tragedy because grazia is like a poster child for it yeah, where's the Tim Burton remake? Oh my god, that would be amazing. Uh, Death takes a holiday. Like if Corpse Ride would like this Oh my god, that'd be amazing. As it is, we just got the really long version of it. Which, again, I've been I've been shitting on the length of time for me, Joe Black. Um, but for the life of me, a lot of occasions, I'm trying because I've complained on this show before about movies with concepts that just like don't go anywhere, or like they have just such a frenetic plot that it's just kind of hard to keep up with anything. And so the fact that this one actually takes the bold enough step to actually have moments between characters that are drawn out and actually like let you simmer with them and the simmer in the performances. I have a certain amount of respect for it. I really did feel engrossed in it at a certain, at a certain point. I think Brad Pitt as an actor is a bit of a piece of wood, but you know, given that he's playing death now become mortal, it kind of fits. <laughs> yeah. It works because he's like an, he's like a, an alien, you know, to harken back to that day the earth stood still comment. It, he, He's like an outsider that just stands there and, you know, strangely deadpanedly eats peanut butter in front of all these cooks. And they're just like, okay, uh, can the scene progress now? Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily feel strange because the character he's been given. So, yeah, I, I'd say it works. I, I think that I would think that uh, pretty much everyone in Meet Joe Black is pretty well cast. I'd be hard pressed to find someone that it's weird seeing Jeffrey Tambor in this sort of role. Hmm. because he's usually he usually plays the blowhard that come, you know he would be the drew role yeah the one that comes in and is sort of the foil for the protagonist because he he's so good at being angry and blustery which i think kind of infected his real life but <laughs> here he's kind of it, it's it's weird because i wouldn't have pictured him in a role like this but i think it works really well as this sort of genial whatever and you know the, the movie paints him as a snake for a good portion of it but come to you know as things unravel, it's like, oh no, his heart really is in the right place. He's just stupid and likes to please everybody. Like it, it's it's a, it's a weird role for him that I think works in the end. That is, and that is, that's kind of actually bring up a good point of there's a surprising amount of depth to all the characters in this, which you wouldn't expect with this style of film, with like the kind of romantic comedy esque thing. But it's really not even that funny. It's not even really positing itself that much as a romantic comedy. Um, they're like lighthearted and sort of funny moments, like the very fish out of water moments with, you know, death. But it's it's weird whenever we actually the chips are down and you're actually able to sit with some of these characters for longer. And like Jeffrey Tambor's um wait, who fucking that, that's his name, right? I'm sorry. Um Yeah, Jeffrey Tambor yeah, Jeffrey, played uh oh Quince. Yes. Um It's it's it like when we get to sit down and like see him and like you know at the end there where he like he has a moment of like emotional breakdown for a brief second before like recomposing himself and everything it's just you don't expect it with these kind of films you kind of expect it to just be people of pretty two-dimensional moments and just meant to kind of propel a plot along but 
even characters that are even kind of deliberately given little screen time, like the other daughter to the main, you know, the main Anthony Hopkins character, she has a moment at the end, like the like whole time she's meant to be this very type A, constantly trying to get all the things lined up for the birthday, big birthday party and everything. But there's a lot of moments at the end where it actually goes like, no, I'm being ignored. This is heart wrenching. I'm trying to do something for my father who clearly prefers my sister to me and it's going nowhere and I hate it. And yeah, that's a very real and raw kind of moment on a few occasions with her. And it's just like, you don't expect that from a character that's really just meant to be a foil more than anything. And she's just, again, meant to be kind of like representative of like, like another stereotype or a trope, but it actually expands on it. It actually has fun with it. And I'm like, and huh. For, for a movie like this too, like you were saying, it's not really a romantic comedy. It's a romantic drama that has some comedy in it. And, and that's just due to some of the writing and just to present some levity. But while watching it, oftentimes I forgot it was sort of that dramatic movie because it's it, it's lighthearted. Excuse me. It's lighthearted for a good portion of the movie. And even in the end, with as, you know, as depressing as you could say that is, they still try to keep it upbeat with the reuniting of um, Allison with uh, the, the original Joe Black man played by Brad Pitt, which we... St- I don't think we ever get his actual name. No, it no, doesn't we don't. really matter at this stage. Um, but you forget, like, there are things like that that most other movies would try to resolve or try to make lighter. Like, for instance, the resolution of the corporate plotline where Anthony Hopkins calls Drew in and he's like, uh, played by Jake Weber, into his office and he's like, this man works for the IRS and we're going to get you and you were on call. Eh, it's fine. But that's sort of the resolution for this sort of plot that I expect from a lot of these movies, especially movies at this time. That's the kind of resolution I was expecting with, like, you were talking about Susan and her, like, breakdown chat with Anthony Hopkins' character at the end where she's like, I know that you have a favorite, and it's fine because I love you. I know I'm not your favorite daughter. And there's no real resolution to that. He doesn't even, like, try to fight. Well, he does a bit initially, but in the end it's like, more or less an acknowledgement of like, yes, I do love you, but I do also have a favorite daughter. Um, yeah. Not that he says that outright. And it's like, wow, that's fucked up. And the fact that he does die. Yeah. Like we discussed it in the plot and a little afterwards with him walking over the bridge, but he, do- there's not like a workaround. A lesser movie would be like, I've learned so much from you. Uh, you know, consider your life spared for now when they have a chuckle and whatever. And then he goes over the bridge by himself. No, they don't do that. Yeah. He died. Like they very surprising. Yeah. It's, and it's just like there's a lot of those really human moments of it that I just like what the where did did we earn this I don't know it's it's good it's like I like these moments and yeah that like you said that there's no real resolution to that like I know I'm not your favorite moment it's like how can you have a resolution moment with that of like yeah this is a very like heart-wrenching thing that this woman is just doing with her father of saying I know I am considered an inferior in this incredibly lavish family and I've accepted that and that's not going to change how I feel about you and it's just this moment of like, yeah, this man is imperfect. He's been probably kind of rough in a lot of ways that he hasn't acknowledged. And there's no fixing that. But sometimes it doesn't need to be fixed. It's like, yeah, that's heavy. Like, what the fuck? And this is all then preceded, as you said, by the scene of them having that, like, IRS, you know, agent thing. Yeah. And I will say, though, that scene is like, you know, obviously it's kind of a wrap up. It's like, oh, OK, yeah, that's, that's fine. Very, like, neat little bow. But. I did genuinely love a line where he's like, man, I really like the Drew character turns to death. And it's like, I really did not place you for an IRS agent. And he just replies with death and taxes. And I'm like, okay, that's fucking funny. That's like, with yeah, the weird, like the, call, the, the callback is nice. Yeah. The de- <laughs> like the sort of deadpan delivery he has with and everything. I think that that was a nice little bow on that whole little subplot. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah. That, it earned that one. Um, 
it's uh yeah it's just it's weird just thinking back just over other moments of it because and i swear i'll go back to dead six of holiday but just there's a lot more to grip onto with joe black um like you know, it, we obviously have the fish out of water situation with the character, but then also he has the moment of when he's speaking to the Jamaican woman where she he's able to speak in her dialect where he's just it's just, you know, Brad Pitt speaking like a Jamaican man. And it's actually like, which is weird because it's it's a little it's I a little weird, it's a little jarring. But at the same time, it's clear that it's, you know, getting over that at a certain point. It's just like, yeah, it's just a dialect when you come right down to it. And like, yeah, this is just a very specific thing. And it's clear it's meant to be a moment of like connection and that this, you know, death is, you know. Despite his, you know, out of placeness, he still has an understanding of the people he has to visit and the people he has to deliver. And it's just I I kind of came to love it by the end of just this interaction, this very human interaction between these two people. I'm like, all right, cool. It's a little odd, but you know I what? Like it's, o- it's clear that they did the research on the dialect. Yeah, I like the overall I like the overall scenes and the connection between them. I think she I think that's an interesting character because, you know, the fir- their first interaction when she sees him is just like, I know who you are. They get left together and she's scared and is like, I want to die. And, you know, then she gets left alone and it's like, oh, that's clearly like, you know, how often does he directly get to interact with client, with uh, people that are dying? I wonder, I, I don't necessarily know the lore there because there isn't any lore there, but you know, it's an interesting touch. And then the fact that he goes back later and it's, it's like, she's the only, this random gen- old Jamaican woman that is dying in the hospital is the only person that Death can like confide in and t- it's like his gal pal. It's very, it's very strange. Yeah, and, uh, like, but I, and seeing him, I love it. And just like seeing um, him there, like at the hospital bed, his like resting his chin on his hands, like kind of like, kind of like all timid and everything being like, yeah, I'm in love. It's like, it's kind of just, it's sweet, you know, of like this, it's this very yeah. kind of childlike wonder with the, with the character. And it's just like, you don't expect that. And it's, it's I'm, I'm surprised they were willing to go there. I, I, yeah, I like everything encompassing those scenes. I, the only reason I found the Jamaican thing weird is because it's it's not like it's another language. Like, no. he starts speaking Korean to talk to someone who, you know, couldn't understand him otherwise. He just starts speaking in a Jamaican dialect, and it, it, it felt weird. Not even for, like, a, oh, my God, Brad Pitt is doing a Jamaican voice. It was just like, does he have to do this? I think it's... Like, I, she can understand him otherwise. I, I think it was more going with the maybe fact... Maybe I just didn't latch onto it. I think it was more going with the fact that, you know, with Jamaican beliefs around death and, like, the afterlife and that sort of thing, it was him connecting with it on that level because she referred to him as you know whatever the jamaican equivalent of either i'd assume like either demon or monster or that sort of thing and he was able to pick up on that and be able to respond in a way she would understand and i think that was really cool like the fact that he was willing to be like no i'm i'm not this like i i am aware of your beliefs but i am not that you know i kind of i'm beyond those sorts of like labels and everything so allow me to allow me to ease your worries and that sort of thing so i i I found it interesting no, it's definitely interesting, regardless of your take on it. Again, it still gives more lore it's than we, gives more lore than Death Takes a Holiday. I don't know what the fuck. Okay, real quick, what the fuck was Death doing there at the beginning, where he was just apparently just like screwing with the drivers at the beginning, where he was just like because they, they both people who were driving cars and nearly like one nearly the other definitely hitting a you know wagon or cart with like from the florist, like apparently they both had like a shadow come over their eyes, which is both in both cases Death. Like was Death just kind of like fucking around? Yeah, I'm kind of curious with that because I, I don't know. <laughs> I I think that Meet Joe Black had to do a lot ex- a lot of extra work to try and justify not just why Death is taking a quote unquote break, but why he picked this specific individual to take a break with. Mm-hmm. My my initial reading with the beginning of Death Takes a Holiday is that these 
kid, these lunatic kids driving crazily or whatever after this party have a brief brush with death. And perhaps because he sees them indulging in their lifestyle and having as much fun, that sort of kicks off his idea for this experiment, perhaps. The only hole in this is then, I don't know why he then proceeds to cause the parents cart to crash after that, because that seems pointless. It, it didn't, it didn't allow him to work his way into the manor to see the Duke. I'm thinking, it, I'm thinking maybe that's more, it's more meant to establish because the fact that no one in the car was no, no one, not even the florist nor the donkey pulling the cart. No one was killed. I'm willing to bet it's meaning to say that death was in, got, became interested after seeing the first car and then brought himself into the world more directly at that point. And was basically interceding on their behalf to be like, you know, because we see later on, once death's on holiday, there is no death on Earth for those three days. Yes. I think it's meaning to be like, he's now interceded with them and is preventing them from dying. Because now that he sees like, oh, here's this upper crusty family who's about the world. I can insert myself into their way, so I better make sure no harm comes to them. And so, ultimately, they were probably still going to hit that cart regardless. But now that he's interceded, they didn't actually die. See, that's interesting because I hadn't considered that point because... They don't officially bring up the fact that people aren't dying yeah. until probably halfway into the movie when What's-His-Name is reading the paper. Yeah, like the gunpowder for some reason isn't working properly. And like, and then we have like all those like, you know, yeah. Dateline scenes like where, where we have a bunch of like moments on newsreels or like newspapers saying like, oh, horrible burning, like burning orphanage or whatever. No, all, you know, all souls rescued and all that sort of thing. And it's just like, it's a bit, it's again, it's another one of those things. It feels like it sets up. And it doesn't really do anything with. It's just yeah, it, they, they drop of, the ball in a lot of ways. Yeah, like there's just a lot of threads that go along with it. Because even when I watched through it, I was thinking I was going to have a higher opinion of it than I did. Because it felt like they were going to have like some deeper poetic moments about death and like having a really like truly gothic kind of feel to the character, which they kind of have at times. And then it ends in a way that's like okay, yeah, this is very much like this is like <laughs> this is modern gothic. Um, kind of ending of, you know, just self-insert gets to, you know, be in a relationship with death for all eternity. Um, But the fact that it just kind of doesn't really nail in on any one route in particular just makes it all kind of a mess. Yeah, and and once again, I have to lament the fact that I was robbed of the movie that I actually wanted, where death is confronted with himself dying. Yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah, like that's, that's that's cool. That's what I wanted. That's where I thought it was going. And, and I think that's what again, that's what it was trying to bring across. Because even in the end, where he talks about like you're like you know you have a life to live, I have merely the rest of this evening, and it's just like it, it seems as if they were trying to go that route, but I don't know if they knew necessarily how to wrap it up. And I imagine maybe the play original play like the original Italian play of this is a bit more clear on the subject, or at the very least, culturally, it has a bit more of the impact that it's hoping for. And I think something just gets lost in translation. There's a there's a mystique and a dramaticism that the movie seems like it's so desperately trying to portray that it's just not quite hitting. It, otherwise, it just has the problem with early film, like, well, film of that era, I guess I should say, where it just, at times, can just feel a little stocky, where it's just not much is going on and people just kind of talking for extended periods. And I know ultimately right. plays are just that, especially Italian plays. Um, I would hope that that's sort of the case. I, also, you sort of reminded me in talking about that. I love not just the time difference between these two movies, but also the cultural difference with this being America and Death Takes a Holiday. I can't really tell 
based on the names, if it's supposed to be America or if it is meant to be like a weird Americanized version of Italy. I think it's meant it, uh, it's meant to be Italy just because of the fact of like the fact that the, the man himself, the main like head of the household is himself a duke. And like it, it's even yeah, stated and Grazia that. and Corrado and the name so, of their uh, villa, yeah, I, the name of their villa and everything is very Italian and everything. So I oh, think it's just it's just a very I forgot about the villa. Yeah, it's just a very yeah. bastardized version of Italy, just in through an American lens. Um, but yeah, I, I like I like sort of the comparison between the two in that everyone Death is like a right bastard in the thirty four version, a little bit, and. He he just he he thinks so highly of himself and doesn't ever get comeuppance because he's deaf. You know what are you gonna do? So it, it's 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 such a strange like even up to the end, everyone is so genial and they're they're not fighting him on taking Grazia. They're pleading with him not to because they rec- they recognize his status in eternity. I guess also, compared to just the Americanized like Anthony Hopkins berating. It's like yeah, fuck off. <laughs> Berating him like "fuck you, get out of my house." I yeah. know who you are. I don't care. Yeah, what's like you know USA? Um, yeah. But, and also, I gotta say again, it must just it might just be a cultural thing as well. Again, but the family was willing to jump on the fact that he is death itself there at the end pretty quick. Like, I know the one woman like saw yes. into his eyes and truly saw his nature. And obviously, yeah, she's like she's convinced. But the rest of the family, like, they're just like, "What is this creep doing?" And the guy tells you, "I have to tell you the truth here. He is death." And they're like, "Oh, really?" He's like, I would have questioned that at least a little. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because I remember specifically watching that and laughing so hard because he's like, no, he has a secret. And they're hemming and hawing about it for like five fucking minutes. Oh, my God. And he's like, all right, I will tell you. He is the Lord Death. He is the end. And and some of the people sort of gasp. And Grazia's mother is in the back and she goes, oh, my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) You're very quick to just accept that. Yeah. I'm just like. And I think ultimately that's what I think it definitely is better as a play where the whole vibe of it's meant to be this like general like dramaticism with all things where, yeah, you say this grand sweeping thing. And of course, everyone's going to be like, Egads, what 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 has befallen us? But again, like you said, with the American version is like, fuck off. <laughs> it's like, it's just, I don't, I'm, listen, I don't care. Like you're being a jackass. I have to go to my board meeting. Stop annoying me in the middle of this. Here's here's a hundred bucks. Go wander around the city. <laughs> It's like, it's just, it's, yeah. it's so, it's so very real and very much, it, it, yeah, I think it's just the fact of, yeah, culturally, it's something we understand more because it's just, it's American arrogance versus like Italian showmanship. It's, exactly. And, and, and to stand up for Death Takes a Holiday for a second, well, I, I, I have a couple things to stand up for that movie. I haven't even touched on the performances, which there are a couple people I really like in the movie, but yeah. primarily speaking, I think that Meet Joe Black, the fact that Anthony Hopkins's character is the only person really that knows Joe's secret. And then there is like a hint or a slight allusion to the fact that possibly Allison is aware of it at the end and she just doesn't want to accept it. I think that that works well for a storytelling perspective um, and, and how they sort of piece all the bits together. I love that turn in Death Takes a Holiday where the final par- portion of the movie is like 10 people that are all aware this man's the Grim Reaper and just like pleading with him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I sort of like the contrast where it's like, oh yeah, we're not doing like the secret thing anymore. Just everyone is aware. They accepted it very quickly. And some of them are like on their high horse, like the Baron who's like, I had a suspicion he was death all along after something he said to me. And it's like, no, you did no, you're a, you're a liar. You are a liar. Hey, get out of here. But I, 
I do I do like that sort of turn, something you could only get from like an interesting play from another culture that has been adapted, you know, it's Yeah. It's sort of a different sensibility there that I appreciate. Like the very kind of Faustian nature of it where it's kind of go it goes from, you know, it goes from it, it, it it's willing to take that jump from the mundanity of these interactions to you are interacting with a force of nature itself and it gives a sort of gravitas to it that it deserves. Um it's just like, you know, it's a very much like, like, you know, old, like Greek or Roman epics and that sort of thing where they have these moments where they realize, oh, I'm interacting with a god and this change just, it just turns everything on its head. And I, yeah, that moment of them at the end, just like pleading and begging and like recognizing that at the end of the day, we have no hope to even try to influence this guy. So the best we can hope for is his pity. And that's that's heavy, like the whole situation of it, where, you know, ultimately the whole thing could just be a metaphor for them not wanting their daughter to like not wanting to lose the life of their daughter. Like, you know, this could have just been like, oh, it was an allegory for their daughter, like being like coming down with a disease and them, you know, praying for her salvation, but ultimately it falling on deaf ears and all these sorts of things. And it's just there's a like I said, a gravitas and a certain kind of poetry to the whole situation that's very cool to really kind of take witness to. It's it's nice and it's it's a great aspect of of the way that they're able to sort of uh, piece these things together and and again it just has such a metal that, ending of and she said no I will not reject you I love you for who you are and I know what the fuck I said let's go off into eternity together I'm like whoa yeah fuck you Corrado yeah but, you can uh, got shit on this you have barely done anything in this movie either barely anyone does anything at all um, but. To that point, I think a lot of the characters or like the actors are doing like a fine job for a movie from the 30s. Yeah. Because I mean, just even on this show alone, we've seen so many of them at this point, or we've talked about so many 20s and 30s movies here. Mm-hmm. But particularly, I do think Frederick March is is fantastic in this very specific, abrasive uh, portrayal of death. Yeah. Just this but Italian I dickhead. Think, <laughs> I think Guy Standing as the Duke also does a f- fantastic job of this sort of th- this this worry work that's constantly trying to cover himself and not piss this guy off or they're all doomed it's like they're kind of pulling pulling up the entire movie and i wish that mo- i wish that more of the movie was just the two of them i don't need to see death talk to all these other people or I would just like a- sexually harass this woman yeah. on a bench like i don't need this yeah like more of a waiting for Godot situation with death and also this very lived man it's like that would have been interesting yeah. So what, what I'm okay. Basically, what we're realizing here is we want it to be more like Meet Joe Black. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I want yeah. the Duke to have more, more prominent of a role. Yeah. Like that's. You know, I want Jeffrey Tambor to be there. Which, in all fairness, you know what? Props to Meet Joe Black for doing that. We've said early on. We said early on in the show where, and it's I've always I tend to lose the plot line of that myself. But like I've always wanted to try and like examine what exactly they were trying to do and why it was necessary to make a remake of something. And I think the only reason you can ever do it really is if you feel there were things that could have been expanded upon in the original that it just got wrong. And I think Meet Joe Black did that. Like, it did everything it really set out for. It just it took, okay, what if Death came down, fell in love with a mortal, and was otherwise trying to become infatuated with life? Like, how do we portray that in the best way possible? Well, give him a central character to be based around, that being, you know, Anthony Hopkins' character, and then have the other items kind of come naturally. And it did that. It actually, like, it expanded, you know, here's like, you know, very much, you know, he is the most interesting man in the world kind of deal and just had death follow him around for a week. Yeah, I, 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 
Sorry, I I was silent for a really long time there because I was just processing everything you said, and I was like, eh. oh, "That's that's fine." I, yeah, I was worried. I, I mean, I, I was worried I lost the internet again. Oh no, I was just sitting there like thinking, like the the hamster wheel turning. It's like I do, I do pretty much agree with you. I I I don't, man. I don't even have anything else to say on that. I think that that's probably a good indication of, even if that wasn't the intention behind the remake something good that it ended up doing and uh, you know the improvements that it was able to make i i do know for a fact that there was a a death takes a holiday in between these two in like 1971 or 1972 uh it might have been a made for tv movie but i mean we we've done tv movies here in the past so that didn't matter it's just this the reason i chose this one specifically instead of the 70s one is because this looked this looked like it would be different because of the actors that were in it and just the poster and the trailer, I was like, okay, this one looks like it's it's very different. I didn't know that the difference would be a good thing necessarily. Yeah, you know, and and I I have to wonder if se- if the seventies one made any improvements or if it was just a more direct retelling of that original story. I'm curious now. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I do think that differences probably only did it only did it justice. <laughs> um, and it's nice seeing it because some like. We don't too often get remakes that are so distinctly different from its original. It very much, it very much did is loosely based on the original. When you get right down to it. It's really just kind of the overarching concept more than anything. But I think that's really the only way you can do a good remake is because they were just trying to make a good film, but a concept was already taken for it, and so they just ran with it. It's like, all right, fine, like we can do that. We're allowed to do that. Just like take a take a concept that an earlier movie did maybe do up something more with it and then do a film that just, uh, just make a good film as is. And it doesn't have to be like, Oh, how do we pay nods to the original? Or how do we make this sequel way after the fact, which by the way, I need to, there's a um, one I'll need to tell you about later um, that I revealed that I, fi- that I figured out, which I won't reveal on here. Cause it'll probably be a potential episode um, okay. for a particular time of year. in, in fact, um, but it's like, it's still, there are so many movies that are just like, trying to capture lightning in the bottle again or otherwise just trying to ape the original out of for nostalgia points or whatever and this one really didn't feel the need to do that it seems like it really just said okay here's the concept let's do it better here we go and that's that's enough that's more than enough yeah i i really feel like disney needs to take some notes because too often a lot of the people that complain about the disney remakes it feels like they never complain about them for the right reasons yeah it's always it's always pointless bullshit and a lot of what people complain about is like, this isn't true to the original story. And it's like, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be. It doesn't necessarily have to be true to the original source material. Like Aladdin, overall, I didn't like that remake, but I thought it did some interesting story things that the writing just kind of failed to tie up in the end, but yeah. taken a different direction. It's like, no, that's a pretty, you know, that's a good, that's a decent way to take the story. The thing where Disney primarily suffers with the remakes is they try to, they try to mix up all the story beats. They don't, have the writing chops apparently just to actually have them satisfyingly close out and then but then they try to mimic the style of their animated movie down to the t so it's it's almost like you're watching the original now it's just the graphics are better you know like a game remake or something it's like oh the graphics are slightly better and i mean i i would say that applies to all of them except for maybe beauty and the beast yeah which i still think is probably their only good one in my opinion um which, you know, that, that'll catch me some amount of flack. I keep seeing more and more people online being like, oh, that, that remake sucked. It's like, I, I thought it was fine. Um, but, you know, that's kind of besides the point. Um, yeah. Right. It's yeah, it's just, I don't know. I, I, I When it gets right down to it, I'm always going to be the type who's going to want to be like, I, why do we need to feel the need to make a sequel to this that doesn't need a sequel or make a remake to this that doesn't need a remake and all that sort of whatever. But 
I don't dislike the concept of a remake when it is for the simple fact of most every possible idea for a story has at least been written down somewhere in the world. If someone wants to just do something differently with it, they should be allowed to do that. I mean, even calling, you know, me Joe Black a remake almost feels wrong in a way because it does so much of its own thing. But it is close enough that you really have to call it a remake. And so, right. It's just, you know, at this point, it's just kind of comparing apples to oranges, really. Right. Which I think is fine, especially for the show. I was worried about that years ago. Uh, we started doing some movies where it's like, well, is this really a remake? Not not literally. Like Devil and Daniel Webster and Shortcut to Happiness. It's like in the broadest sense, is that a remake? But it's like pulling in its own aspects of it. And it's like it's not actually Daniel Webster. Like he's like a lawyer now. So it's like a weird sequel remake hybrid. But I agree with your points. Uh, I, I think that the ideas kind of mesh together at some point and it's hard to distinguish them. So it's like, is this a remake? I, I would say so. Even if it's not necessarily a remake of the movie, they definitely took inspiration from the play, as is noted, uh, and the and uh, specific beats from the movie itself. So it's like, yeah, it's it's in the ballpark, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, you know, shouldn't let a conceptual, you know, a conceptual hang up be the difference, you know, be the difference between making a movie and not making a movie. Because it's like, you know, there's if I had the resources to make a movie, I'd make, there's a bunch of older films that I think the concept was great, but the execution sucked. And you know what? Those deserve to be done differently. And so do them fucking differently. But also, you know, yeah. maybe the ones that were really, really good don't need a reattempt at it. That day of the jackal versus the jackal. <laughs> what a what a so, what an attempt. Yeah, like it is I don't even know if I could call it earnest, but it's it's it's, a, it's an attempt. Jesus Christ. But yeah, I honestly going into this, I did not fully expect to come out on um, Meet Joe Black's side as much as I did. I really was kind of thinking like, oh, truly I did just kind of love the ending of um, Death Takes a Holiday that much just because I thought like, wow, we are witnessing the, the the goth apotheosis here. And, you know, I thought that was just kind of cool. I'm glad they went with that ending for it. I think, you know, doing anything differently would have just kind of been inconsequential in the end. And I do like the fact that they didn't do that with the, you know, with Meet Joe Black because they're they, very much in our cultural frame of reference where we'll recognize hey that'd be fucked up if death just decided to just take this woman that he that he decided he's in love with um but you know that's again that's just more for our cultural lens than anything else and but yeah i i i did not expect to be as as much on its side as it is i i really expected it to be a bit more even but no <laughs> i agree i i say i'm on the i'm on the meet joe black side which uh i don't think i initially was but that's why I like having these conversations with you, whether we're recording them or not, just because it, it, it's it's a good perspective shift and a way to actually talk through things to sort of find out where where I sit, where I do, and why I why I sort of lean that way. And throughout the discussion of this, it's it more and more it's oh yeah, I like that about Micho Black. I like that about Micho Black. I like that too. Really, the only thing I don't like is the is the fucking length because I don't have an attention span anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's just a bit too much. Like, if, I'm trying to remember who had the quote of if a movie can't, if a, if a film can't bring its point across inside 90 minutes of actual on screen film, then it is a waste of time. Yes. <laughs> Which I agree <laughs> that, with to that's a, the entire. Th I agree with to a point. Obviously, you know, I was I was lauding up, you know, everything everywhere all at once. And it's definitely longer than two hours. Um, But it's 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 by case by case basis more than anything. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I've mentioned it a few times on the show already, but that was the entire thesis of that Pompeo the Cinephile movie 
<laughs> I yeah. saw last year. It's like any longer than 90 minutes that's and it, you yeah. have failed as a filmmaker. <laughs> yes, that, that's where it's wrong. I'm sorry. I couldn't remember. Um, mm. Yeah. And it, like, it, I don't care what kind of movie it is. Three hours is too much. Like I put my hard limit at two and a half and that is a hard limit. Yeah. I was going to say everything everywhere is like two hours, 24 or something like that. Yeah. Which like, it was just close, <laughs> but, but yeah, <laughs> you're almost there. You're, you're on thin uh, ice motherfuckers. <laughs> I'm watching you. Best picture winner. <laughs> yeah. See what I see what you think of me. Uh, uh, yeah. I think I've, but that, that yeah, I think that's I, our, uh, I think I've meandered as much as I can. Yeah. That's yeah. That's sort of where we sit. So I'll go ahead and launch into socials. Be my guest. But, um, Go ahead and follow us on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. We are on pretty much all of them. We are on the Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Podbay, Podomatic, iHeartRadio, YouTube, Stitcher, all the goodies. Uh, and we are on Anchor, who also hosts the podcast. Thank you, Anchor. Thank you, Anchor. I love that cadence that you put out there. <laughs> my, uh, <laughs> my, throat, my throat is slowly dying, so... Um, go ahead and uh, send us an email. They remade it at gmail.com with any suggestions about potential future episodes you may want us to cover. If you have any ideas on the podcast or just, you know, what do you like? What do you dislike? doesn't matter to me uh, or Stu. We will uh, read. I can't promise we'll respond, but we'll read. I will, it, it, we will acknowledge <laughs> it, at least in some capacity. Yes. Yes. I will nod my head behind my desk as I, as I see it come in. And then I'll turn the monitor off. But go ahead and follow us also at It Remade on Twitter for updates on when podcast episodes are going live, potential future episodes, things that we've talked about on the show, such as movies, what we've been playing, any potential news bits that may come through, and for uh, full circle diagrams that I have been uh, putting together regarding people we've covered on the show, or, uh, show more than one time. Uh, and that's about it for socials. Oh, man, that's... Uh, you know, normally I have some amount of, like, quippiness by the end, but I've realized after doing this show for so many years that my body does go into kind of like a uh, hurrah mode whenever recording and everything. So even when I'm not necessarily feeling super hundred percent, I can still get through it. But I'm realizing now by the end of it, man, I, I, my throat is killing me. <laughs> so I think, I think death done got to me. Wow. Yeah. It'll come to us, man. Oh God. Yeah. It's like the fucking just one, one last, I guess, small note is, I do love the posters for both of these films. One, just for the fact that Death Takes a Holiday is just the same 1930s or whatever film poster ever, which is man in front of frame, plus also, you know, near kiss in background kind of deal. And it's just kind of like, yeah, and <laughs> it's just kind of just like a very nothing poster. But then the Meet Joe Black poster, it's got, you know, Brad Pitt's character about to kiss the Allison character, but it just has Brad Pitt and Anthony Hopkins at the top, which is just like, wow, Anthony Hopkins looks different. And then also it's meet Joe Black. Um, sooner or later, uh, everyone does. And like, you know, from the poster, it just makes him it just makes him look like a gigolo. Don't... Yeah, there's not there's not much of an actual. There's no there's no <laughs> indication <laughs> that this guy is death. This just looks like a male escort. <laughs> this looks like a Chippendales guy. <laughs> I say this is my first time seeing the Death Takes a Holiday poster, and I love the fact that he has like a monocle in the oh, foreground yeah. he's holding on to. He's like, "My word, there's people making love th behind me." I do say, I do hope, I do hope, I, like, I must go on my holiday at once. <laughs> Jesus I hope I don't turn around and get startled by anything saucy in this pre-code movie. Well, Brad Pitt's just like, uh, "Well, that'd be cash or card." <laughs> oh God, I'm I'm losing it. I need some medicine. I hear you. Uh, as always, I am your host, Stuart. And I'm your host, Jacob. 
Have a good night, everybody. Stay healthy. His Majesty Death, amusing himself on a holiday, amusing himself with love.